0: Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now my guest this week has raced pretty much everything. V8 supercars, an IndyCar, a TCR, the Le Mans 24-hour, the Bathurst 24-hour and the race of a thousand years in Adelaide. I bet you forgot about that one. I nearly had, but luckily we didn't. That's right, our guest on this episode is Jason Bright. Now, in the first part of our chat, we talk about his open-wheel career. In particular, his time racing Indy Lights in the US in 2000 that culminated that year with him driving in the Gold Coast Indy event in Surface Paradise. He also talks about a huge shunt he had in Indy Lights that year and the gruesome injury that it caused. And he tells a hilarious story about the day he was supposed to have his first IndyCar test in 1996, although he didn't really find it all that funny at the time. Stay tuned for the second part where we ask him your National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and he tackles our Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. If you've entered our V8 Sleuth podcast trivia competition, stay tuned. The three winners will be announced at the end of part two. Now, Jason didn't come into V8 Sleuth headquarters. We had this chat over the phone instead of uh, how we'd normally do it as part of the measures we're all taking in the face of COVID-19. So this podcast will sound a little different to our usual one-on-one chats. So just keep that in mind as you listen. Here we go. Buckle up. Time to start. Part one of Jason Bright on the V8 Sleuth podcast, How, by Timken. Well, in these times of COVID-19, we do live in the same city, but we figured it was just quicker to call on the phone and try to pipe it on through the system. And Jason Bright is with us on the V8 Sleuth podcast. Uh, Jason, we have a lot of ground to cover uh, I don't know where to start. Do you, do you want to tell me where to start or will I tell you where we start?
1: I'll leave it up to you, Aaron. Um, yeah. So, yeah, happy to happy to sort of delve into anything you want to chat about. Anything?
0: <laughs> careful, careful. <laughs> hey, one of the things that I know, and we've known one another for a very long time now, uh, something that we've discussed, uh, I guess, as colleagues and friends, that I don't think you've really spoken about publicly as a young kid um, am I right in saying that you went with your parents to Formula 1 races in the late 70s as a, I guess you were what, five or six years of age, and you were actually at Monza in 1978, the day that Mario Andretti won the World Championship, but with great sadness his Lotus teammate Ronnie Peterson uh, sadly was killed. Is that right? Do I remember that correctly?
1: Yeah, it is true. Uh, yeah, my, my dad you know, was pretty good at planning, and he still is very good at planning you know, any holidays he does around motorsport events. So <laughs> It's a skill. Yeah, a skill. Our, our family holiday, and I got three months out of school when I was five years old to go overseas and go to a few Grand Prix. Um, I was at Monza 78, yeah, when Ronnie Peterson had his crash, and and um, my dad, I don't, I don't remember it very clearly, but my dad tells me, you know, about the story. I, you know, he wasn't expected to, to die, you know, everyone went home from the track knowing he'd been injured but you know woke up to the news the next morning that he'd passed away so yeah it was um i, I don't remember a lot about it i know there's a photo of me somewhere with a, a lotus t-shirt on and a, a, and a ferrari hat on um but yeah that's that's about it my, the, the limit of my memory on it
0: at that stage as a a little kid was the the motor racing bug had it had it already bitten or was it about to bite bigger and better as you got a bit older
1: no, I mean it. it had for sure because you know my dad loved motorsport. You know we didn't go to football games. We went to we went to car races, and um, you know I you know I can remember plenty of times sitting on the on the roof of the toilet at long Road corner watching you know Formula Five Thousands, and you know went to all the World Sports Car races at Sandown, and you know all the Sandown Five Hundred. So you know, we went to we used to go to Calder for all of the events there, and and, um, you know, watch the Formula Atlantic. So, yeah, it was, it was certainly bitten. And, you know, my dad loves his open wheelers. So, you know, a lot of it was probably centred more around open wheelers than, than touring cars at that stage. But, um, no, it, it was certainly bitten. And, you know, I, it, was, it was always good going away with dad and, and uh, going to those events.
0: Something that clicks in my brain too is it oh, – see, the thing is, when you've known someone for 20-odd years, there's things that get hazy in your memory bank, but there's other things that you keep <laughs> fragments of. reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you keep fragments of other things and you can glue them together down the track. Is it right that there's somewhere in one of those fantastic great race books from um, Chevron Publishing that they used to do a book every year that was the chronicle of that year's race, in one of those early 80s, I, I have this recollection, is it right that you're in the background of a photo of, of Brock tipping over the top of the mountain somewhere? And of course the yeah. great irony was that you drove with him in the yeah. 24 hours some years later.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was, um, I think it's in Australian Motor Racing Yearbook, 83, I think. And, uh, there's a photo of Brock going through the dipper. And I, I remember, you know, flicking through it when dad bought it and, um, going, oh, I remember watching him go through the dipper. Oh, there I am in the background. And, and yeah, it was, um, it's, it's yeah, it's obviously me because I'm wearing a Magpies t-shirt. And I remember wearing it at the time, and yeah, it was it was just quite yeah, quite funny. Oh, there I am. It's it, it, uh, yeah, it's I think it was '83. I'm pretty sure. And Brock's going through there in his Commodore. We will
0: go and dig it out, scan it up, and put it on <laughs> social media. And we put some of the uh, the posts out about this podcast. There's so many things for us to cover, and we tend to jump around in this podcast here, there, and everywhere. We don't really follow the chronological order even though we've kind of started at that point but am I right in another story that someone told me so when you won Bathurst in 1998 with Steve Richards for for Stone Brothers in the Pertec Falcon everyone will remember probably that you crashed earlier in the week that they fixed the car just before qualifying you started 15th you pitted early and ran that reverse strategy but is it right that your dad backed you at something like 35, 40 to 1 to win the race and made a good amount of money off your Bathurst win.
1: Yeah, I think that was probably true, yeah. I mean, it was, um, I think it was around, yeah, it was over 30 30 to 1, so yeah, it was, at least someone still had faith. I know that, you know, there was, uh, we obviously went there, you know, pretty confident that we were going to be competitive and after the crash, you know, it certainly put a bit of a spatter in the works and. And I know that the sponsors were pretty, pretty disappointed at the time, and and um, you know, I heard comments of, you know, why, you know, I told you we shouldn't have, uh, you know, sponsored this car, and then obviously, you know, it all, it all paled into insignificance come Sunday afternoon, um, and it made for a good story, apparently. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty crazy weekend. You know, the, the guys, you know, did an awesome job to get us back out there. You know, the strategy, it went well. Everything went to plan and I've been to Bathurst plenty of times since and felt like we've had a better chance of winning and something goes wrong. So it just shows that everything has to go right for you on that day. How
0: does winning Bathurst change your life? Does it change your life? I mean, forever you are Jason Bright, Bathurst 1000 winner, regardless of what championships you won in other categories or races that you won in other cars. How did it change your life then and how does it change your life now?
1: Uh, it, it definitely changes your life. I mean, so at the time, it's it's a bit of a whirlwind, you know, for the next couple of weeks, where you know everyone wants a, a piece of you, and and uh, you know it, it definitely helps on the on the resume. Uh, it's something that is is obviously iconic in Australian motorsport, and and people outside a motorsport world know of. You know, if I if you win a Formula Ford championship or a Formula Holden championship or anything else, you know, people don't recognise that outside motorsport. But if you, if you say you won Bathurst or you know you, you get mentioned as a Bathurst winner, people can relate to that.
0: They know it's a big deal. They know it's the it's effectively being the the winner of the the. Uh, the chocolates, it's it's the grand final. It's everything that matters, isn't it? Um, hey, tell me about yeah. that first year that you you entered the, the championship, obviously that year full-time after winning Formula Holden the year before. Uh, Stone Brothers Racing had bought out Alan Jones, so they were SBR for the first time. What was your first deal with them? I mean, I'm, I'm always interested. At the time, it's the biggest thing in your life and the greatest of opportunities, and it, of course, leads to a great career. But, you know, what sort of a deal
1: were you on? Was it kind of like an
0: apprentice-type way? What were you, what were uh, you making yeah, back I mean, then? It, were
1: you on good bucks or what? I mean, it wasn't, you know, certainly wasn't going to, um, you know, <laughs> set me up for life. But at the time, you, you sort of look back and go, oh, how many professional drivers were there in supercars at the time? And you could count them on one hand. You know, there, there was a few guys that owned their own teams. You know, there was a few, you know, but there was, it was, very limited number of guys that were being paid as a professional driver, you know, and, and, you know, you, you'd say Skate was, you know, Lounge was, um, you know. Ingle, probably the, another one. Ingle, yeah, But, um, you know, you had Larry owning his own team, Dick owning his own team. There was, there was probably Radicic or, you know, or Bow, There mm. wasn't many. And, mm. and so I, I consider myself pretty lucky to just even be earning a, Wage driving a racing car, um, you know, and that's you know that all changed over the next few years. You know, there was massive growth in professional drivers and you know teams that could actually go out there and employ a driver like never before. So that was you know there was exciting times. You know, the sport was going through a massive amount of growth. You know, Channel Ten at the time put supercars on the map. Um, you know, all thanks to the guys at SEL who you know, did all the right things to to make the category, I guess, a a marketable option for race teams to go out there and find sponsors.
0: Mm. What was the process that got you in? Obviously, you'd driven the year before in the Sandown Endurance race with Alan Jones where you finished third, which I think a lot of people forget that one, Um, and then he and and the Stones part ways. Was it kind of the the uh, convincing of the sponsor group to say – give this young guy a crack, was it kind of on the on the verge of, well, it's you or an experienced driver, mm, <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll listen. To, was it the Stones that got the deal over the yeah. line for you to drive the car? It Did that was, all come together? Do you remember when you got uh, the phone call to say you're in? I
1: do, yeah. It was, it was crazy times because I've obviously done the race in Tasmania with GRM. Um, Which
0: was as a feeling for Steve Richards, for those who Steve Richards, might not yeah. remember because there was a, a calendar clash with V8s. The same weekend as two two liters in Lakeside, which uh, Steve Richards went and did two liter, and and you got your your V8 debut. And I think you're still drying out from that weekend. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, it was. It worked out great. I mean, I I woke up the Saturday morning because were just two day race meetings back then, and and uh, you know my heart shuddered because it was raining, and it actually turned out to be a great thing because I was on the on the better tire for the day, which was the Bridgestone, and, and it made me look pretty good. So. That opened more doors for me than anything else I ever did in my career. And um, Stones, you know, pretty soon called me up because Scott Pruitt couldn't do Sandown. Uh, I jumped in the car at Sandown with Alan Jones, and yeah, we finished third. Um, there was already sort of wheels in motion for Stones to buy out Alan Jones at that stage, um, which made it quite uncomfortable. But you know, I I really enjoyed. You know the the way Stones went about it, and as it turned out, we got on the podium. Um, AJ didn't go to the podium. I went to the podium, and the guys at Pert from Pertec were there, and they handed me a flag, and I held it up, and and that was you know, that was probably the start of it. You know, they were they were pretty rapt to be on the podium. You know, so why didn't he I, get, wh- I did wh- the right wh- thing by them? Why didn't he go to the podium? Uh, it, it was <laughs> it was just it wasn't he, he that was the way he was. You know. He, he uh, you know, he took off halfway through Bathurst as well that year. Um, you know, once the car was out of contention, which was the only way, only reason why I got in. And you know, it was he was at a very different stage of his career. You know, probably wasn't that happy with some of the things that were going on within the team. Um, and you know, so it made, like I said, it made it a bit of an uncomfortable weekend. But it opened up the door for me with Pertex And then I had, you know, I had an offer from GRM for two thousand. For, for 1998, um, and I, I sort of held out to, for the Stone brothers drive, which was took which was fairly risky at the time because it wasn't all done. Mm. and in fact, the day that I arrived in Queensland, um Ross was down in Sydney doing the deal with Komatsu to sponsor the car, and uh, they pulled out. Uh, so i I was basically I'd landed in Sydney or driven to Sydney, I'm oh sorry, driven to uh, Gold Coast um, only to find out that the sponsor that Ross thought he had has now decided to go with Alan Jones for 1998 and um, and we didn't have anything. So fortunately, Glenn Duncan from Pertex chased Ross to the car park from the meeting and said, give me 24 hours to speak to all my franchisees and we'll see what we can do. And um, and that's how the Pertex Relationship started, I guess, or well, increased from just being a smaller sponsor on the Kamatsu car to being naming rights. So it was, uh, it was, it was pretty tense times. And you know, I you know, take my hat off to Ross because he could have easily, you know, backed out of it. I, I feel at the time to say, all right, you know, we'll just continue to have AJ, you know, because all the sponsorship was there, and and um, you know, he he, you know. Old that you know, we're going with this young bloke, and um, yeah, you know, we believe that's the future, and and uh, fortunately protected as well.
0: That led to a, a very sick, obviously we, we covered Bathurst, which is instantly a, a reason for that relationship and that scenario to be successful. The AU Falcon came along for 1999, which is a very unloved car by many people who <laughs> raced it, but you did win around at Hidden Valley and Darwin amid a sea of uh, Commodore wins, and then Bathurst. Nineteen ninety nine is when you announced the news that you were going to head to the US the next year. So, from my memory, was that a case that you you still had a, a year to go on your contract and you you did a deal to, to, to head off, or how did that work?
1: Yeah, I, I did actually. Yeah, I so think in '99 I did a two year deal, and and uh, I mean there was it was a bit. Um, you know, we had a great had a great couple of years at Stones, and and uh, you know really enjoyed driving to the team, but I still had aspirations to race overseas and. And uh, it was, I I was still trying, you know, still talking to teams in, in the US. I, you know, didn't want to sort of give up on that dream. I didn't want to sort of race supercars for the next 20 years and regret not having a good crack at overseas. And, you know, there was an opportunity to go over there and test the Indy Light car, which I did. And, um, you know, I Ross was always quite, I guess, Restrictive on what I could do, as you know, he didn't want me sort of still chasing the American dream. And, and did that so lead to a little bit of tension, Jace? It did. Um, you know, the, 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 unfortunately, you know, I, I guess I, I would have liked to have told Ross in the right way, but you know, I had to, I had to sort of pursue these things without him knowing. And so I'd, I'd organised to go over and do the test in America, um, and you know, the first Ross heard about was when a fax came through to the to the office fax um you know with my itinerant because that was the details they had and uh, i got into the office into the workshop one day and and ross said oh there's a there's a fax on the fax machine for you bridie and i walked in to see what it was and i heard the door close behind me and ross is like what's going on and and uh he, he maybe make a decision there and then on whether i was driving for them the year after or going to America, And at the time, I didn't even have much locked away in America. didn't have a sponsor. Um, And I made the decision that, you know, I was going to America. So, yeah, fortunately, it all sort of panned out over the next couple of months. And, um, you know, I managed to get to do that.
0: So did did you have a contract with Stones for 2000?
1: I did, yeah. Yeah, But Ross, you know, decided that that was null and void. If, uh, you know, if I was going to America, you know, then... So, yeah, as it turned out, you know, there was, you know, there was, it still went on for a little bit longer. But, um, you know, I, I, once I had the drive in the US, that was where I was going. Mm.
0: And it's amazing to think that it's 20 years this year since you did that year in Indy Lights, which, of course, culminated in the Gold Coast Indy race, which was the ultimate goal to get an Australian on the grid for that uh, race, which at the time, uh, it was massive, huge crowds. Cart was so strong with the engine manufacturers spending a lot of money. Uh, the top line teams were in the series. Of course, they'd split from uh, the Indy Racing League, which was racing the Indy 500. It would all come back together uh, years later. But I remember the excitement around seeing, and this is, of course, before social media and the instantaneous way of media these days, but in the Motorsport News office when the photos came through of your test in the Dalla Pena car at I think it was at Phoenix, at Firebird, yeah, was Firebird it bird, yeah. Yeah, when yeah. those photos very slowly, remember the old days of modems and and photos taking about nine years to download, yeah. waiting for each line of the graphic, and there it was, and there was you in that red, I think it was a Reynard Toyota, the real yeah. deal, he's driving the car, he's going to be doing it in a couple of weeks in Queensland, and, and then you did it, I mean, it's hard to believe, it's 20 years ago, it's scary.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And, and at the time, you know, it was, there was a lot of work that went into, you know, getting over there that year and, and making that deal happen. And, you know, IMG and, you know, the Queensland government, you know, I guess believed in, in what we were sort of telling them that, you know, that having an Aussie in, in that event is going to take it to another level. And, um, you know, some of it all came about quite late and, and there was, it was on again, off again. A couple of times, and and uh, you know, fortunately, it all happened. But it, it felt like you know, for the lead-up, that you know, it wasn't really, I guess, enough awareness that you know, there wasn't Ozzy in the race for the first time ever. But come Sunday morning on the driver parade, it was insane. You know, there was—I remember all the drivers in front looking behind, you know, trying to figure out why the crowd was, you know, going crazy towards the back of the field. Um, and on the driver parade. So it was, it was pretty satisfying. You know, I, I guess I grew up, been to, you know, every Australian Grand Prix since, you know, 1980 when Alan Jones was at Calder. Um, And, you know, there'd been a long time since we'd had an Aussie, you know, in, you know, Grand Prix that, you know, wasn't a Jones or a Bradman. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, good to see and you know, it's great to see these days that we've got Aussies in Grand Prix and Car races and you know all around the world.
0: What do you remember, because the thing I remember too, I mean, sitting down to do these podcasts, we go back through some of the, the magazines of the period and the the articles and the things that were going on. Am I right in remembering that the deal for you to do the Gold Coast wasn't with the team that you ended up doing it with, John Della who I think recently passed away, sadly. Uh, he ran a single car team that had been running the Bud car with Richie Hearn and they were in and out of sponsors and, and drivers, but weren't you going to drive for Carl Hogan's team? Wasn't that yeah, the deal? Part,
1: yeah, we've got a very good memory now.
0: Yeah, a, no, a, original, a very big magazine the original, collection too. Yeah,
1: the, uh, the original discussions were with yeah Carl Hogan. Um, and I can't remember why that one didn't happen. Uh, you know, I, uh, it but the door opened up with John Dallapena and I think he was, you know, more... On a race by race basis at that stage of the season. Um, you know, whereas Hogan's, I think they were, you know, locked away with whoever they were. And so, yeah, it didn't, didn't happen with, with Hogan, but you know, the, the, the Delta thing was good. You know, the, um, it was, the big disappointment about that weekend for me was the weather. It, it rained for all of practice, you know, and there was an hour and a half practice both Friday and Saturday. And then it was dry for both qualifying sessions and, and uh, Sunday qualifying session when I've done more laps was a much slower session because there was rubbish all over the track and leaves and, and uh, it was really windy. So no one improved in that session. And so, yeah, it, it pretty much came down to the first couple of laps of qualifying in the dry, which were my first laps of on, on the track in the dry. Um, and we, we, we've been sort of midfield for most of the sessions in the wet, but yeah because qualifying came down to that first couple of laps that I'd ever done in the dry around the track. It, it just didn't sort of fare as well as what it should have in the result.
0: Was it everything you thought it'd be, driving one of those cars at the time that were turbocharged? I think they were 2.65 litre. They were V8s. They were, what, 900-odd horsepower. That's when Indy cars were totally a beast of a thing. Was it everything that you expected, or was it even more?
1: Uh, power-wise, was insane. You I think we were doing... Um, 320 kilometers an hour at the end of the straight, the, the, the Gold Coast, and it was still accelerating. Well, like, they were crazy powerful cars, um, really good to drive. But if, if anything, you know, if I sort of compare it to the Indy Life car, I felt like the Indy Life car was, you had to be more aggressive with, uh, more nimble, uh, you know, you, you had to really sort of get up on the wheel in that car, whereas Indy car was a much bigger beast and you know, it would take three laps to get the tyres up to temperature, and, and but yeah, power wise, just insane, you know, crazy amount of power. And, um, yeah, very, very happy that I got to the main, I guess, the best thing about that weekend was sitting on the grid at, at uh, in a, in an Australian, you know, international event. That was pretty special.
0: What happened out of the, the race obviously is a one off and it cost a lot of money to put it together, but. What happened? Did the phone ring from teams who thought, hey, you did a good job considering the, the conditions and the equipment that you were in? We'd like to have a chat to you. Was there, or was it always a case of how much money you got, kid, from Australia? That That's pretty much the scenario. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, there was, unfortunately, like, the, probably the top 80% of the field, you know, all of the pay drives, they're all established, very established guys. Much the same as what supercars was for... You know, the 80s and early 90s, where it was a big risk for any team to sort of go with a new young bloke. You know, they all had sponsors, you know, good sponsors like, you know, cigarette companies and, and, um, alcohol brands and like a big, big sponsorship in there, but they needed established drivers. And, um, and so it was very hard to break into that sort of top. of the field, and then you had the teams at the back of the field that you know they required drivers to bring some sponsorship. And um, it was probably still two or three million dollars US at the time to do a full season with the likes of um, uh, what's their name still in there? Um, Dale Coyne. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he was he was pretty keen on doing something. I, I had a lot of chats with him and, and you know, spent time with their workshop. But, you know, it was just going to be so hard to come up with those sort of dollars from, you know, from an Australian company to go back there and do it. So I was lucky at the time I, you know, had a the HRT contract in my back pocket, which I signed at Bathurst in 99. Um, and I had till February the 15th to find something in America. And if I didn't find an IndyCar drive, then I, um, I had the sort of HRT drive to fall back on. So I sort of had the best of both worlds as far as I was concerned where I could have a really good crack at trying to still get something in America for a few months. But if I didn't, I, I had a, a good plan to, mm. you know, to drive for what was the benchmark team in Australia at the time.
0: What did that cost to put that – Gold Coast program together if it was what if you had if you were asked for two or three million a year what was a what was a one-off what did that put you
1: well it was it was (laughs) for that one event it was 900,000 Australian whoa um so yeah it was an expensive event to do you know they like the budgets back then were you know around 20 million dollars a year um for a lot of those teams so and there was 18 to 20 rounds or whatever it was. So, you know, that's just what it costs to jump in for one round. Um, you know, especially when, you know, you're sort of not contributing to the rest of the year. That's just what the teams would expect. And there was no sort of getting around that at the time. Um, the, you know, where, you know, coin was sort of three mil for the year after, that, you know, that was him, you know, just not doing it anywhere near the budget of what, you know, the, the top teams were doing at that. And um, you know, he had some sponsorship himself, and you know, they just weren't doing it at, at the same level. But yeah, it was it was a lot of money, um, you know. And I was very you know lucky that IMG and, and uh, you know, Queensland government and um, you know the, my sponsors at the time all sort of chipped in to you know make it make it happen.
0: We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines? Some standing as tall as 260 metres. That's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres, that's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea. Where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable-sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year-round, we'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now it's back to the podcast. The year of that season was one thing I wanted to, to touch off with you too. The Indy Lights program that you did with uh, the late Bob Doricott's team. I mean, the the driving lineup that was in that year series was. It was top notch because some of the names that went on to do some of the other things, I mean obviously it was a year that Scott Dixon was involved and name that our listeners will certainly know and those who follow the American scene closely will know some of the names that you're up against but I think it was Portland wasn't it where you had your, your win but uh, you also had a big big shunt that virtually put you on your back for weeks at a time It's it was probably never really reported how serious that was.
1: Yeah well yeah it was, it was a good year Yeah, I, I loved racing those cars, I loved the mixture of Ovals and road courses, and we got to race at some great road courses like Mid Ohio and um, you know Laguna Seca, and yeah, it was it was, and and all the rounds were with IndyCar, so you know it was always a a really good series to be involved in. Um, You know, I had had, was driving for a very good team at Doricot and and we, you know, I was leading the championship I think at round six um, as a rookie, which was. A good position to be in, um, knowing that we were probably going to get stronger as the year went on. And I had a crash at uh, at Chicago, which was you know, the slowest oval that we went to all year. Um, but it was still hundred and ten miles. I was going to say they're not uh, slow when you crash yeah. on them, <laughs> No, and but yeah, it was it was a simple crash, simple spin, went backwards into the wall, and and injured you know my my back. Um, and it was it was not a you know structural injury it was. I, because I moved in the car but my skin and fascia didn't, I gave myself a hematoma, which is like a big blister. I ripped all of the skin and fascia off the muscle from my shoulder blades to my pelvis. And um, excruciating pain, you know, I, I, but I was pretty keen to get back in the car. Um, and for the next week and a half, I just couldn't see myself getting in the car again for a while. Um they drained my back a week and a half after the crash, you know, and, and they're were, they were draining it every few days. Um, and I felt a lot better and got in the car in the motorhome and drove to, from Indianapolis to Ohio. We made a new seat. Um, and it was a struggle just getting in and out of the car. But once I started the car, I couldn't feel a thing. Um, you know, drove out of the pits and yeah, was back on the pace and actually put it on pole at mid Ohio that weekend, which was two weeks after the crash. But It took a good six or eight months for it all to reattach, and but driving the race car was actually the best thing for it because you know if there was any swelling or blood building up there, it would all just absorb back in over a race weekend. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was pretty gross. It was strapped up the whole time, you know, to try and compress it. Um, But in the race car, I I couldn't feel a thing.
0: So did that crash? Cost you the momentum that you needed to keep carrying for the? I think it was about the mid part of the season that that happened. So, was it the crash that really stopped the momentum then for the results for the rest of the year? Was it the budget? Was the the team? Was the the car? What, no, what was the scenario? It wasn't.
1: Like? It was not the crash. I mean, I I you know I came out of the next oval and and um, you know this was it was a bit crazy this one because um, so we had mid Ohio two weeks later and I finished finished um, second there after the qualifying poll. And then um, the next oval was St. Louis and and I was running second there to Casey Mears and my seatbelt popped loose Um, (laughs) and it was pretty early in the race um, and I still finished the race. I finished third behind Townsend Bell, um, which was crazy. Like I'm still getting over the injury and all of a sudden my lap belt popped undone and I couldn't get it back done up. So I sort of. Conceded second place to Townsend Bell and stupid. You kept racing an race. oval
0: race with no belt strapped up. You're nuts.
1: I know. It was like at the time, you know, you're like, what do I do? What do I do? Like, you know, uh, yeah, pit, uh, get it I, put back together? I probably together. wouldn't do it again. I probably wouldn't do it again, Aaron, but um, <laughs> I would hope not. Young and stupid and, and, uh, you know, desperate to try and recover the lost ground of Chicago. It was, you know, Trying to finish that, and and then I had a change of uh, mechanic um, at the time. So my lead mechanic, who was a very good mechanic, left, and that left me with a sort of inexperienced guy, unfortunately. And um, we went to the next road course, at Laguna Seca, after qualifying pole at Mid Ohio, and we were nowhere. Like we were three quarters of the way down through the field, and um, my engineer asked the mechanic you know, have you checked the diff? You know, it's like there's something wrong with the diff and he checked it and it all looked all right. and So then we went to the next oval and we were competitive again and then we went to the next road course and off the pace again at um, Vancouver. And and uh, we got we went and did a test and actually, you know, turned the car around and got to the last round at Houston and Casey Mears, mechanic, came over and he was like, oh, having haven't looked at this in the gearbox. He's like, man, you dipped in the wrong way. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like told the mechanic that, you no, know, it's in backwards. And um, so it was, uh, you know, locking up in the wrong area in the corner and we just had all this understeer. We turned it around and, you know, went from quickest at Houston to sort of, you know, mid-pack again. But that, that was what hurt our championship. It was, you know, three road courses in a row. We just struggled because, you know, the diff was assembled wrong, um, you know, which was pretty heartbreaking because, you know, even though we had to crash it, at, uh, at Chicago and missed that round. I think we would have been able to recover a lot better than uh, you know than where we ended up had we had we had some good results in the road courses, which was probably our strength.
0: Had you been able to get those results and that diff been around the other way, and maybe won the series or finished second or third or been a bit tighter in the points heading into the final few rounds, would that have changed the opportunities that would have? been presented for the following year with, with champ car teams or, or anything like uh, that? Or would it,
1: again, have been a no, case of... It, yeah, yeah? it's hard to know. I mean, Scott obviously, you know, got in with West for the year after. Um, you know, and I think if, you know, if I had won the championship or even just finished second in the championship as a rookie, um, yeah, I think that would have made a very big difference. But, you know, unfortunately... The momentum we had at the start of the year and leading the championship by round six just all gets forgotten if you have, you know, three or four bad rounds towards the end of the year. And so, yeah, that, that was, you know, it was pretty heartbreaking. It was interesting. Um, uh, I can't remember who I was speaking to, whether it was, I've got a feeling it was Pedro Alami. Um, I was telling him about it one day and he's like, in F3000, exactly the same thing happened to him. Um, and it was, you know, similar, it was Lola car. Um, and it was just the way that you looked at the the, the diff, you know, the way that you sort of think it goes in. It's actually the opposite, and, um, and so he was he uh, he said exactly the same thing happened to him. Where just halfway through the year, it all went pear shaped. So.
0: What was the uh, another one of those things that rem- um, is in my memory bank that you drove around? You lived in a motorhome that year, driving from race to race, heading around the states with your, your partner. Then Mel, I remember back at the time. Uh, was that because it was the cheapest way to do it, or was it a bit of a like a Griswold World Tour experience to try to, to do it that way? What was the scenario? There it was just a case of saving as many bucks as you could. Uh,
1: you summed it up by being experienced. It was, um, you know, it was there was certainly a lot to learn about living out of a motorhome, but it was, you know, I I'd raced over there in two oh, sorry, nineteen ninety six. We'll get to that. Doing, oh, I forgot about that one. Doing, doing Formula Ford two thousand and. Uh, the the I guess for that year, you know, I had to find an apartment. You know, I had to find a car to drive around in. I had to had to find furniture and, and all of those things. And 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 then you had to get all the flights and all the accommodation of the racetracks And and so going back over there in two thousand, I was like thinking, you know, there is an easier way to do this. You know, motorhome would worked pretty well. You don't have to worry about packing unpacking bags and. And getting flights and accommodation and all those things, you you drive to the next track, you park, you put your overalls on, and go out and drive. And uh, and it was it was great in that respect. Um, you know, I got to see a lot of the country as well, and you know, meet a lot of people in some pretty weird RV parks. But it was <laughs> it was uh, it was yeah, It was I, I enjoyed it. it. You know, it was a fifth wheel, so you could sort of unhook the F three fifty off the front and and you know, drive that around town and yeah so, so it worked pretty well for what I was doing that year and um, you know it's a lot easier in a lot of regards and it was funny because you know the Mears family or Casey's parents used to run the team for Bob Doricott and um, you know Casey put his overalls on in the morning and pretty much take them off when he went to bed um, you know each every time you go testing he's just in his overalls all day coming out from breakfast with his overalls on already and and uh, it was yeah it was a very different to uh, you know staying in a motel and getting to the track and then you know getting all your gear on. Hmm.
0: Did that season put you in major debt that you had to pay off for the following years? I know a lot of drivers who've gone to America or, or Europe with F three and that, that sort of thing have ended up spending a lot of their V eight income in the following years to, to pay that back. What sort of a scenario were you in when you, you got to the end of that process?
1: No, I was. I was lucky. I, mean, I the deal that was with pot racing was um, you know they, they wanted the engineer that I did the test with um, they you know that pretty much got me the drive you know the that the, uh, you know the way it all sort of came about um, you know there was a commission of earnings if I ever did make it to IndyCar or f1 but you know not not if I sort of ended up back in Australia so I was you know it was a, an amazing deal I was you know very sort of fortunate that you know, guys like Bob loved their motorsport so much and, and they really wanted the engineer that I worked with that year. Um and that, that was pretty much the crux of the deal was, you know, if I was there, that engineer was going to be there.
0: Mm. And it worked out pretty well. I think you you gotta to put together, I mean, looking back on it now, I don't think we've given drivers from Australia who've gone overseas and had a crack at whether it's the states or Europe enough credit, or I don't think a lot of people understand until you start naming the names of the drivers that you raced against, and that you beat, and I think we haven't covered enough the Portland win, so let's rewind back to that, because that was the the standout achievement from that Indy Lights series. What do you remember of, of that win, and how that race unfolded, and how it came to be that you got that first win for, for 2000
1: Indy Lights? Uh, I mean, I know we were, we were competitive, lot like the, the year started well, um, you know, we got second in the very first race at you know, Long Beach, so we knew that road courses were going to be a you know, where I should get the wins. Um, but saying that I got plenty of podiums on the Ovals as well. So but yeah, by Portland, you know, I I certainly expected to be able to be in a situation where I could get wins and and, uh I think my my teammate was right with me the whole way, Townsend Bell who's now a commentator on the IndyCar circuit. But uh yeah it was you know, he went on to win the championship the year after but no it was it was, a, it was a good race, you know. Portland was a, a great circuit, um, you know. After watching it for years, on and a lot of all those circuits, watching it for years as a as a spectator on, on TV, you know, it was good to get a win at one of those circuits. Um, but you know, I, I I guess you know, i probably expected to get a couple more wins that year. Um, but it was it was you know good to get one early in the year. I think that if it wasn't for you know the problems we had with the car later in the year, we should have notched up a few more. At
0: that time, American Open Wheeler Racing had had its big split. 1996 is an infamous year for IndyCar history where uh, the Indy Racing League was formed. The Speedway ran its own um, series with uh, a view of having more opportunities for short track drivers and dirt track drivers, getting it back to how it used to be back in the day. And Kart was obviously very, very strong running an international-type series, heavily based in North America, but with all the engine manufacturers and the big-name teams and, and the like. And you were there as you mentioned before, in the US Formula 4 2000 series in 96. So you raced against guys like Sam Hornish Jr. He won the Indy 500. Buddy Rice, he won the Indy 500. Sam Schmidt's a very successful team owner, obviously had that nasty accident in a wheelchair, but is a really inspirational guy with what he's done in the sport. At that very time, and and I don't know that anyone's ever really gone down this pathway with you, but was your full focus – the champ, the CART series, as it was then, because there was the race in Australia, or did you look at all at the the Indy Racing League because the chance was there to do the Indy 500, and uh, and you know that event is is bannerhead. Did you ever talk to anyone in IRL or look at that as a pathway? Uh,
1: I did, and you know, CART was definitely my focus. I think the day that I announced I was going to America in 1995 was the day that the IRL was formed, and you know there was a, a split on the cards. There was you know. And uh, we, uh, you know, Chris Jaw, myself, who was helping me back then, you know, that was the Indy Five Hundred was the goal, and so yeah, that certainly put a bit of a dint in the champ car side of things because you know we had the Australian race, which was obviously a big part of trying to get there, and and then uh, you had the Indy Five Hundred, which was the biggest motorsport event in the world, and and that, so it's yeah, it was unlucky timing in that regard. I. I Doing from the Ford 2000, we actually raced with the IRL Championship at a fair few events um, on the ovals. And it was, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the ovals. I learned so much racing on ovals, and the and, you know, most exhilarating racing I've ever done was on ovals. Um, but racing ovals every single week wasn't what I set out to do. Um, you know, and so when I, when the IRL was sort of first starting up and it was all going to be overalls, it was, that just wasn't that appealing. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, I mean, the the cars were very dangerous back then. You know, I saw, you know, Sam Schmidt, you know, within a couple of years of racing against him, you know, he was in a wheelchair, Steve Knapp who won the championship the year that I did Formula Ford 2000, he broke his neck. Um, you know, and then it just, it's not, what I wanted to do every week, you know, but I really love the champ car format, which was, you know, a bunch of road courses and a bunch of ovals and mixing it up a bit. So it it would probably would have been easier to try and pursue something in IRL for the year after, but it would have been very hard to probably harder to find the sponsorship to do that than what it would have been to try and raise $3 million to do champ car with an Australian event on the, on the calendar
0: plus tv coverage at the time through uh, channel 10 of all the other races i think at the time the irl was probably you know on fox sports which not very many people would have been seeing back in the yeah. day uh, tell me the story about when you were supposed to do your first indie car test because this was a few years before you ended up racing on the gold coast in that time that you were in the states for formula 4 2000 in 1996 tell me the story because is it right that you were supposed to drive a Derek walker Valvoline car but the closest you got was photos in the car and there may have been a run-in with the constabulary on the
1: way to the venue. You've got to tell the full <laughs> story. I never told you that. Yeah, 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 I, yeah I think that, you it, may have. You there, might have forgotten a you There's funny part of this story and a very disappointing part of the story. Well, give us both. Two, two, two disappointing parts. One was getting to the circuit that morning. So I, I think the last round of the championship was a couple of weeks before and I sort of hung around in America specifically to go and do this test, which was at Putnam Park in uh, in Indianapolis. and So I'd sort of... Flown there, and, and Chris Jewell was there as well, and we're trying to get to the circuit, and uh, and couldn't find the circuit. Um, and so we, <laughs> no Google Maps in 1996. Yeah, we'd overshot on the on the freeway, and and um, anyway, I, I wasn't speeding much, and this you know copper pulls me over and and books um, me, and like you know, so where is this track? And he sort of gave us some directions, which was back the other way, and and uh, so I'm turned around, going back the other way to head to the circuit and um and Chris is like, Come on, mate, get up at a bit because because uh, yeah, you know, we're running pretty late here and I'm like, man, I don't want to get another ticket and as I said it, I'm like, there's a cop pulling me over and the cop was crossing the freeway, chasing after me, and I'm like, You're kidding me and and so the the, <laughs> the cop comes to the window and he's like, you know, when was the last time you were pulled over in the well pulled over in the state of Indiana? And I'm like A couple of minutes ago, and he's like, I didn't ask you whether I was, whether I just pulled you over, boy. And I'm like, mate, I just got pulled over by another cop going the other way a couple of minutes ago. And he's like, you're having a bad day. I'm like, no shit. And so (laughs) it was, uh, that was sort of the start from a bad day. And then, you know, we got to the circuit and it was, it was a test day that they were doing. Scott could you was driving, and, um, and, you know, pretty much when we got there, the, uh, the engine let go and that was the end of the day. So, yeah, got to sit in the car. Um, you know, would have been pretty cool to drive it as a twenty three year old that I was at the time, but um yeah, it wasn't to be and I had to wait a few more years to get a steer of an indie car. But you know, it, it all came about, you know, through the in relationship that we had at the time and um you know, I had a lot of good chats with Derek Walker over the years about, you know, trying to do something. But yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, that day didn't happen. Um and it cost me a speeding ticket to get there. Do you remember how much it was? Uh, no, not really. No, I mean, it, it's funny over there because you could do, you could be doing twenty mile an hour over, and the cop wouldn't even look at you. And I think I got done for five or ten mile an hour over. You know, and the second guy did let me off.
0: Oh well, that's okay then. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. He didn't. He, he he actually called the other cop and you know verified my story <laughs> that he just booked me and uh, yeah, or I showed him the ticket, whatever, and. Anyway, I didn't get a second ticket, but,
0: yeah, the first one hurt enough. Uh, it was bad enough you didn't get to drive the car later on. That was the uh yep.
1: the I'd trade two tickets for a driver. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, you and me both, my friend, uh, <laughs> you and me both. Uh, we're focused very heavily on the overseas part because I think that's a part of your story that's probably not get been given enough um, coverage. But let's rewind a little bit further back to the, the Open Wheeler days in Australia with Formula Holden where you and Bargwana and Noski and some of those guys had some ripping fights in those cars, the ex-Formula 3000 cars with the Holden V6 engine. And Formula Ford, I mean, it was – so you won the championship 95, you won the Formula Holden championship 97, but that year of 95, there was – who was in there? I mean, it was you, Barguana, Mark Webber, of course, in the Yellow Pages car. Uh, Gavin Monaghan, I think, was around the scene at the time. That's when every class of every year of Formula Ford had easily two, three, four, five standout guys that – you could all identify as they're gonna go somewhere. They've got genuine talent and ability and that was one of the really good classes of, of Formula Ford.
1: It was it was, a, it was a good era. Like, you know, I think there was you know, ten or sixteen new Van Diemens brought in that year and a couple of Swifts and it was you know, it was really good. I you know, I was obviously in the Van Diemen, Mark was in the Van Diemen, we both sort of had a factory deal. Monaghan was in a Van Diemen and he had Probably more experience on us, and it was yeah you know, great racing. Had some great upstream battles at Bathurst and you know Lakeside, and um, you know I yeah I, it was good times. You know we were, we were running as a you know just out of a, a workshop with my dad. I had you know my mates um, Les and my uncle helping me work on the car. It was it was just very enjoyable. You know um, you know we'd get to the meetings and all go out for dinner with. You know Weber and his family, and I, you know, I look back on those days, and and um, you know, it's it sort of you know, it was it was very enjoyable times, um, and very good racing. So, and you know, it was a great community too. I mean, Formula Ford was being run really well. There was good fields, there were good events because we were on at all of the you know supercar events. Um, so it was, you know, I, I look back pretty fondly on on that era
0: is it right that the year before ninety four you you actually were out of money and a at a gold Coast ironically enough the gold Coast pops up again a result there that got the attention and some backing to keep you going is is that what unfolded yeah. the year before
1: yeah it was it was um you know we we sort of did ninety three in the in the spectrum so um, it sort of didn't pan out we had some problems there and and so we you know bought a swift and and uh you know put everything into the first couple of rounds you know it was it was like we could either through and maybe get to five or six rounds or we can just put everything into, you know, this first couple of rounds at, at uh, you know, I think it was um, Gold Coast was one of the first ones, uh, maybe Amaru Park or something. And, and so we, we put everything into those couple of rounds, um, went to the Gold Coast. I think we got hole up there um, in 94 and, and and. Paul Mulhern, who uh, you know was Factory Enterprises, he his son had been racing against us that year before, and um, you know Paul was was uh, pretty keen to still have a bit of involvement. But you know, even though his son wasn't racing, you know how can he do that? And he came down and you know had heard the the story that was going to be our last event, and um, you know said right, you know the, the rest of the year I'm going to get you through it, um, and became a you know great supporter of. Of us for the the rest of the year, um, brought his mate on David Ratcliffe to chip in as well, and um, you know we got through that year. And for the following year, we picked up you know Valvoline support and skilled engineering, who was my um, you know, my employer at the time. Um, and so we went into 95, you know, with a, a much better budget to go out there and you know be competitive and have a crack at the championship. But it was um, you know, Paul Paul was a great, or well, he still is a great supporter of. You know, kids in Formula Ford and uh, you know open wheelers. Um, you know, he, he supported Mostert and Justin Connor and um, and the like. So yeah, he's um he's been a been a. You know, my my career wouldn't have even you know got any further than the Gold Coast if it wasn't for you know Paul's generosity.
0: We've talked to a lot of people on this podcast, and they've all got one, two, three, four crucial people at crucial times who they met or stuck some money in or opened a door for them somewhere and I guess Paul's one of those for you. Who else along the way would you say are the, the big people that have helped you be who you are and have the, the career that you are? Obviously your parents are a, a major part of that because they've put a lot in over the years, particularly in the early period. But as you go through those lily pads of a career, uh, who else would you identify as being the critical ones that helped you get to the next stage and the next one after that and the, the next one after that?
1: Oh, I think there's there's a lot of people. I don't think it's you know there's there's obviously the guys like Paul that you know that got me to the next step there. But you know there was you know whether it was Gary Rogers giving me a drive like he has for so many young blokes um, in the car at Tasmania that opened more doors in my career. You know whether it was Barana and you know Malcolm Ramsey and the competitive operation that they ran. Um, you know Ross having a having the faith. You know that a young bloke was going to be able to move their team to the next level, and I, you know there's there's a there's a ton of different people. Um, You know, Bob Doricott, like I yeah, I, I think I've been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. You know, and, and even later in my career, you know, when when uh, the GFC hit and there was pretty tough times at Brightech, you know, Brad Jones approached me and said, you know, if I ever want to. Just drive again and, and um, not have to worry about all of the team owner stuff, you know, coming out a chat and, and I obviously did. So, you know, there's there's a lot of people that have have uh, you know, I guess supported me through my career that that it could have ended at any one of those stages, um, and you know, I'm pretty pretty fortunate that it that it didn't. You know, there's I guess I watched a lot of guys early in my career. That you know were great drivers, um, you know, and, and you know didn't quite make that transition into cars or out of Formula Ford. That had all the ability, just weren't in the right place at the right time. And that's what you've got to you've got to make sure you're in the right place at the right time, and surrounded by the right people, and got the right equipment to do the job. And if if you've got all of those ingredients, and you get the results, then if if, uh, you might be lucky and make it to the next step, and I was pretty fortunate in that
0: regard. The sliding doors of motorsport can be really interesting on what could have happened, where, why, and how, but we can only deal with what's actually happened. Hey, one of the things that we always ask our guests on this podcast, because, as you know, we're big on the history of the sport and what's happened and learning from it and understanding more about it and peeling back, I guess, the, the layers of the onion, but we asked everybody about their memorabilia, and I know you're big on keeping your... Suits, your helmets. What are your most prized possessions from your motorsport career that you've kept over the years?
1: Uh, certainly, my helmets. Yeah, I you know I've always hung on to every helmet, and I you know, put them all in my office here and and uh, enjoy you know looking at those. Uh, that, that that's probably the biggest thing. You know, I've kept all my race suits. planned on one day sort of getting them all framed. But that's a lot of won't. framing. That's They're a probably... lot of
0: framing, mate.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, it's, it, uh, it is, you know, I do enjoy, you know, sort of having all my helmets around, you know, if I ever do anything with the suits, it'd be great. Uh, the, the only suit that I you know regret is, or the regret not having is my IndyCar one. Um, you know, I wore me my Ghibli for the weekend because the one that they sent me was about 20 sizes too big and. <laughs> which I did hold on to, and then that went missing at a uh, Brightek Open Day, unfortunately. So, oh no! Um, so I don't have anything as a memento, suit-wise, from the IndyCar race, just the helmet. But anyway, that is what it is. Um, you know, maybe it'll pop up one day.
0: Trophies. I, I know that a lot of race teams, it's the team that owns the trophy, and sometimes drivers get replica ones made to put in their own on their own mantelpiece at their office or at, at home or work or wherever they're putting them. Are you a trophy guy? Have you have you got any that are very special? Maybe I, even from a, a, the karting days as a
1: kid. Yeah, I mean, I've got most of the trophies. You know, I, I was sort of lucky. I, it wasn't many teams that I drove for that I didn't get to keep the trophies for. Um, I, you know, I got my Bathurst one, Sandown 500, Clipsal. You know, all of those trophies are, are, uh, were, were mine. Um, the Bathurst one had a, had a bit of an exciting ride home from Bathurst because it fell out of the cupboard and broke in half, but it got fixed, which is <laughs> good.
0: Um, <laughs> did you but, tell anybody about that or not?
1: I did just then, um, <laughs> but it was it was in the truck. It was you know, it fell out of the the cupboard in the truck, and you know because it's just a bit of solder in the middle that holds it all together. It's, um, or what you gonna it um, are going to call it? It yeah, came apart, but it got got welded back together. Um, you'd never know. well. We do um, now. You do yeah you, yeah, but you know it's sort of there's no dints or anything in it. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was in two pieces by the time it got back to the Gold Coast. Um, but I'm looking at it here right now. It looks pristine. You never know the difference. They so maybe need to polish. That's
0: about it. Oh, that's okay then. If that's the worst thing that you've got to do, then that's that's not such a big problem. Hey, uh, the other thing that we focus on on V8 Sleuth is the race cars. We love going and finding old race cars from back in the day or unearthing things that people didn't really understand what they they had for the achievements that they had maybe 20 years ago. Like, what car from your career would you love to have? If money wasn't an option and you, you didn't have to worry about storage space or anything like that, what's the one car that you'd love to have from your career? Yeah, it's funny.
1: Isn't it? I mean, I like, don't know whether there's one particular one. I mean, you know, yeah, the Indy car would be awesome. Well, there's um, a story there, isn't there? Know, because a couple, did, of,
0: yeah. a couple of years ago, last year I think maybe it was, yep. I spotted yep. online... John De La Penna himself, before he passed away, was selling one of his former team um, champ cars, and I had a sneaking thought that it might have been the Gold Coast car, but unfortunately oh, the, you were, the numbers didn't match up and it wasn't that car we didn't think, but that would have been yeah. good to try to find a way no, to get that one.
1: that would have – if that was there, then I would have found a way to make that happen because it was – you know, that that would have been pretty cool. Um, yeah, that would be that'd be nice to have hanging on the wall somewhere. But, you know, I – I got good memories of like the Formula Holmes and Formula Fords, you know, that I raced um, here. You know, the I guess, um, you know, my first ever race car was an RF86 Van Diem, and that was a pretty cool car. And um, you know, I guess, making a bunch of mistakes and cutting my teeth and learning how to work on race cars with that thing was a, a very pivotal sort of point in my career. Um, so that one would be, you know, I. I Reckon pretty special. Um, supercars wise, yeah, I think there's, you know, I, I, it would be hard to sort of pick one out. You know, the, the PWR Commodore, um, the orange and white one, was pretty cool. Uh, you know, got a few poles in that, and, you know, I felt like we got everything we could out of that car. Um, the, the Caterpillar 2006 Falcon, know, uh, that was. Same deal, like you know. I felt like uh, you know Phil Key to myself were getting everything we could out of that car, and um, and you know, that that's what makes a race car pretty special for me. And then um, you know probably my PerTech Falcon, sorry was well, the Brightech Falcon that um, that I was leading Bathurst in. You know that was a pretty cool car as well. But yeah, you know there's, I, I couldn't sort of pick one where I'm like, yep, yeah, I'd have to have that one.
0: You'd have to have them all, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I, I'm one of those guys that it's either all or nothing. You know, <laughs> I end up having to get them all somehow. Um, you know, it's good to see my you know the Bathurst winning Falcon you know restored into its you know original colours and everything like. Still seeing that go around, you know that that's pretty special. You know, it'd be a shame to see a car like that. You know that I guess was a pretty big part of my career. Um, if it just ended up not being sort of kept as a car um, or or in its original colours. So it's good to see that people have got the passion to keep supercars in in their original liveries and and, uh, condition.
0: I'm determined now. We're going to find that 2000 Reynard. I'm on a mission. (laughs) I want to go and find that thing. Because the good thing is there was probably 100 of those things made every year and yeah. a rolling chassis with no engine or electronics or anything in it probably wouldn't be that dear. We'll wait for the borders to uh, no. all open up again. We'll get that sucker to Australia. We'll hang it on a wall somewhere. Sound good?
1: That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, and yeah, that, that you know something special like that. I think that'd be something I'd be interested in having on the wall. I mean, I know Malcolm ramsey has got my '91 Reynard um, still in skilled colours and sitting there at a, at a factory. So you know, it's good to see that there's you know cars around that still as i remember them like the the falcon and uh and you know that 91 Reynard, um and i know that the, the rf86 it was restored a few years ago as well um back to sort of original colors and uh, like i was running it back in 1992 so that you know i, I do enjoy hearing that people are, are sort of taking that pride in old cars that have got a good long book
0: So that's part one of our chat with Jason Bright on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken. Stay tuned for part two where we'll drill down on his decorated career in V8 supercars and he also tackles your National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and our traditional motor focus top 10 shootout. And also in part two we reveal the winners of our V8 Sleuth trivia competition from the last episode so stay tuned to see if you're a winner. And if you miss out on a prize, well, good news. Our stock take sale in the V8 Sleuth bookshop is still on. Head to v8sleuth.com.au, click on the bookshop tab and snap up a bargain. We've also recently added a line of stunning art prints by Peter Hughes, so make sure you check those out as well. Sign up to our newsletter, V8 Sleuth's newsletter, while you're there and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram so you don't miss out on any new offers, products or podcast episodes as they pop up. Until then, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's rego to oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Regio, the number two, and Oil and find out.